Thank you for listening to Emmanuel Baptist Church's podcast. For more information about the church, please visit our website at www.emmanuelmanning.com. Thanks and enjoy the sermon. Psalm 127, follow along as I read from God's word. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb, a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. So the picture that I hope is in there is a famous sort of picture. Uh, It's the duck bunny picture. Now, some variety of this picture has been around since the 1800s, but the one in the 1800s was hand-drawn. And if you look at it one way, you see a bunny, and if you look at it another way, you see a duck. I I was tempted this morning. You remember we did that thing one time where we showed the dress that to some people looks white and gold and to others looks blue and whatever? Uh, There's another one out. Have you seen the shoe that's either pink and green or gray? Yeah. Messes with your head, man. I didn't want to mess with your heads this morning. I just wanted you to see that sometimes if you shift things around, you, you get a different perspective. So what looks like a duck one way, it looks like a rabbit another. And that's what Psalm 127 is seeking to do when it comes to the house. And in this psalm, which is a poem, house is, has a double meaning. It, it literally means a house or a city. Or it means a house in terms of uh, children. And it's Solomon wrote it, which is amazing because it kind of plays off of a riff in the book of Samuel where David says, Lord, I want to build you a house. And the Lord says, no, David, I'm going to build you a house. And it means kids. And Solomon is thinking about that. Not only does it say it's written by Solomon, not only does it kind of make sense, but in, in verse 2, when it says he gives to his beloved sleep, beloved in Hebrew is uh, based on the name Jedediah, which is the name that God gave to Solomon. So it, Solomon wrote this, uh, and he wrote it for us to change our perspective as a wise man. He wanted us to see some things differently, and often that's what we need to do because both working to build a house and working with children Uh, can become a grind. Can I get an amen? It's nothing against you kids. It's a grind to live with parents as well. Because we we often forget that the way the Bible's put together can fool us a little bit. We have an Old Testament that's chock full of these great redemptive stories. And if we're not careful will begin to think that every day of our life needs to be filled with these great redemptive stories of God working miraculously day in and day out and mighty things happening. And those things do occasionally happen to all of us, I hope. But you'll remember that the Bible was written over the scope of 
the Old Testament over the scope of many, many, a couple, 3,000 years. And that in between those stories of great redemption is the, the book of Proverbs and Psalms and Ecclesiastes, which is just about living well, living beautifully in the daily grind. And what Solomon wants to do in this psalm this morning is to write in that same vein to say, hey, I want to give you a kind of a 30,000 foot view of your life uh, because you're kind of down here in the, the grind. I flew recently to Portland, Maine, and I don't fly a whole lot. And when I do, I'm always amazed at the patchwork of ground and being above the clouds and just seeing a different perspective. Uh, on things. And that's what Solomon wants to do today. He wants to pull you up and give you a different perspective, both on work and family life, uh, that will hopefully mean that you don't spend a lot of days eating the bread of anxious toil. And I love those two words together, anxious toil. Anxious, our default mode is that everything rests upon us. And as we move further and further away from the Lord, we move closer and closer to anxiety and toil means we just labor at it and it feels a little bit useless. And God's not calling you out of that, is he? He may be calling some of you to the mission field. He may be calling some of you to do these great sort of redemptive things. But for most of us, we live in our day in and day out life, try to be as faithful as we can, try to grow as much as we can. And what Solomon wants to do is to encourage us to continue in that, but to do it with a different perspective, to see things as a bunny instead of as a duck. So he wants to challenge us today, and I want to challenge us to change our perspective on a couple of things. Uh, the first thing is we need to change our perspective on work. And, and on Mother's Day, this is a great thing for us to think about because mothering is a lot of, it's a lot of work. I mean, you parent, you know, my wife parents four children. Work that out. Uh, I have three kids, but she often parents four children. Uh, on a regular basis. Uh, and so it is a lot of work. It's a lot of detail. It can feel like a lot of meaningless toil, but the Lord wants to change our perspective on that. And then he wants to change our perspective on children uh, in the second part. So let's look at these one by one. God must change our perspective on work. The thing we notice here ab about Solomon is he says, unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in what? Vain, and unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in. It is in vain that you rise up early and, and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. The first thing that the Lord is telling us here through Solomon is, unless God is building the house, you're laboring in vain. Now, this is different than Ecclesiastes. It's a different word behind vanity. In Ecclesiastes, it's the word hebel, which means nothingness. The problem with uh, Solomon, we think, the preacher in Ecclesiastes, is that he's worked really hard and gotten everything, and then he realizes that it's meaningless. Here, the, the picture is not that it's meaningless, but that you're not going to get very far. You're not going to get to where you want to get. It's in vain that you build. And so the first thing that the Lord says here is, well, first of all, he kind of lets us know we've got to work. What's interesting is, think about this. There are two images here for workers. One is a builder and one is a watchman. And I think that's interesting because we have builders in our church. We don't have watchmen because we don't have city gates. But I guess if we did, we'd have watchmen. 
both of those jobs require that you see everything done, right? I mean, if you're a builder, you can't let down on a single one of your subcontractors. Because I've worked with subcontractors, you've got to watch those guys. I've been a subcontractor, you've got to watch those guys, all right? Because they'll get away with whatever they can get away with, and you're the one that's responsible. So what a builder does is he watches every single part of the process. We mentioned the Newmans and their loss of a mood ring. Tony, uh, you know, he develops land, and he's got to worry about the grading of the land, and he's got to make sure that everybody is doing every part of their job because if something's not done, it doesn't get done. In the same way, uh, a watchman has to do what? Watch. He's got to check all of the, every area. I recently saw that movie, well, 13 Hours. It's about Benghazi. Y'all know this movie? Uh, I'm not going to say watch it or not watch it, but basically it's the story of the, um, the embassy in Lebanon being attacked over a period of 13 hours. And what's crazy is that those guys who were defending it, they were watchmen. They had to watch every single area, and they had to watch it constantly, and they had to be ready for attack. Builders and watchmen, these are two illustrations that he uses here of people who have to work. Even here, look in verse 2 where it says, It's in vain that you rise up early and late to go to rest. Notice there he's not picking on people who get up early and go to bed late. He's just saying, unless the Lord builds, you do that in vain. Do you see? Throughout the Bible and throughout the Old Testament... Uh, work is honored. We, we misunderstand this somehow thinking that, man, because of Adam, I've got to work. No, we had to work before sin was around. It's just that now work is, it, it, things fight against you. Instead of when you work kind of going with the grain, and, and every now and then the Lord gives us a day like that where we're working and we're just working with a grain of the day and everything goes great. And that's about one day every two years, right? Uh, the rest of the time, everything is working against us. Work is not the issue. It's working in a world that has fallen as a result of sin. It makes it difficult. No, work makes us human. Part of Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 is that we're made to work. Work helps us to bless people. The Bible nowhere looks down on work. I mean, even the first part of the commandment about rest says six days you shall what? Labor. So the first part of the rest command is work. And we don't need to get out of work. We don't need to think we can live a life without work. As a matter of fact, people, whether they're really rich or really poor, who live lives without work generally end up being miserable. We got to work. You, you have to mother you have to provide. You have to bless people. You have to get things done. But what the author is saying here, Solomon, is that unless the Lord is building and working through your work, you work in vain. Human efforts can get a lot done, but human effort by itself cannot guarantee results that will be anything other than vanity. Now, I've got to get philosophical with you for a second here if I can, because for some reason in the way we, we who, who here has ever heard of Aristotle's four causes? That's fine. Go home today and look them up. Primary, secondary, formal, final. Okay, look, look those up. 
Because people used to understand this, and we no longer do. You're like, well, I don't understand, Drew. So God has to work, and I have to work, because the way I think, if God's doing it, then I need to let go and let God. Or if I'm doing it, then it's all work, and God's not involved. Like, and we get into things like free will and election and sovereignty, and we get all muddled up because we think that God working and us working, because they're both causes, are competing causes. So let's deal with this for a second. Do we have cars because of the assembly line that Henry Ford came up with? Or do we have cars because of Henry Ford? Yes. They explain things on different levels. They're not contradictory explanations. It's not because I have this cause and this cause that they're at odds. They're not at odds. They're causes that work on different planes. Do we understand this? Aristotle's four causes. Go look it up. Okay. But that's the point here. You're like, well, if I'm working, then God's work. How does this all? No. You have to work, and God has to work. If it's going to be anything other than vanity. But the way that we work when we understand that God is working for us changes the nature of our working. Because listen to what it says. I love this in verse 2. It's in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. Now that last phrase in verse 2 can be translated a different way, and I, I, I think I appreciate the other translation better, because this verse has haunted me because I don't sleep well. <laughs> so I want it to mean something different. No, I'm kidding. Um, it could be translated this way. For he gives to his beloved in his sleep. And so, and I think that fits the context of the verse a whole lot better. Because what it, it doesn't just mean that God gives you sleep, even though sleep is a great gift. Um, it means that God even gives as we sleep. So in other words, he works in ways that you can't. He accomplishes things that you can't. And he's even at work when you aren't at work. John Piper says this, if you ever wondered why God made us in such a way that we have to sleep away a third of our lives, and let me just say this, you should sleep away a third of your life. Better sleep makes you better in every single area. People who get six hours of sleep for five nights respond the same way on response tests that drunk people do. It's just that drunk people generally know they're drunk and underslept people don't know that they're underslept. You don't get sleep, you get higher chance of diabetes, higher chance of dementia, higher chance of heart attack. We got a doctor in the room. Did you know that residency for doctors, the guy who designed that was a cocaine addict? Makes sense, doesn't it? Because they expect you to go 80 hours with no sleep. Sleep is good. God gave us sleep. Why did he design us to have sleep? Why did he decree that sleep be a part of human experience? John Piper gives his opinion. He wanted to give us a universal reminder to the human race that we are but children and ought to own up to it. We are so frail that we've become helpless and unconscious and blind and weak every day. We have to become helpless and unconscious and blind and weak every day in order to sleep. Sleep is a terribly humbling experience. We're never more weak, never more childlike than when we sleep. But he says here, that even though we labor, we labor from a posture of rest. 
We labor from a posture of rest. In other words, I work for success, but the success ultimately depends upon who? God, which means that my posture in working ultimately depends upon the Lord. Now, we've talked about this recently, and I'm getting ready to transition into children. But let me just remind you, we have, we can assume different stances, but we have one posture, right? So my posture is not great. I tend to slump over because for years I've slumped over. But your posture is what you normally come to. Now, you take all kinds of stances. If somebody comes to me with a baseball bat, I'll take this stance. If somebody attacks my family, I grab a baseball bat and go with this stance. Sometimes, if it's 30 minutes till quitting time, and if I get it done today, there'll be a bonus. I work frantically. Those are all stances that we can assume. But the problem is, if you assume the stance of frantic work, or if you assume the stance of it's all up to me, then that becomes your posture. And then all your work is anxious toil rather than restful labor. And what the Lord wants to remind you of this morning is, unless he does it, everything you do is in vain. So that's the first perspective shift. And this works with no matter whether you're working or whether you're a mom, that every bit of labor that you do with your children or that you do at your job needs to be a bunny rather than a duck. That is, you're working and teaching and washing clothes and dishes and picking up and disciplining all from a position of rest because you can never do the thing that's most important in any circumstance. And what that does is that, that, that causes you just to do your part. If your life feels like a life of anxious toil, it's because you're doing more than your part. And your part is just to work and to dependently rest upon the Lord. This, this, it's the same in being a pastor as it is being a mother. So I'm, to, I'm leaving today to go to Durham, North Carolina to speak for three days at an education practicum. I do that a couple times a summer. Neil is speaking Wednesday night. You're an idiot if you don't come because he'll do a great job. It'll be encouraging and awesome. I'm, I'm bigging you up. You better deliver, Neil. Um, and I'm always reminded every time I do one of these how much homeschooling mom is like being a small church pastor um, in that I constantly have to remember that the thing that you need most is something I can never give to you. I, I can't open your eyes to the glory of God. I can't open your eyes to the truth of the word. I can't open your heart to the love of God. I can't, I can't grant repentance. Who's the only one that can do that? God. And so what I have to do is work really hard on sermons and study and pray and labor hard and then do all of that from a position of rest knowing that I cannot do the most important thing. And in our days and in our labors, that's the thing that we have to, to do. We have to work hard from a position of rest. And that's why we need to change our attitude on it. The second thing we need to do is change our perspective on children. What you'll see from this passage is that God doesn't have a sentimental view of motherhood. He doesn't at all. As a matter of fact, some people think that this is a psalm that's written to men because in the end, children are arrows, right? Like, they're, they're an inheritance, they're a reward, uh, they're arrows. 
maybe something about this psalm is to convince men that they should be good dads. I don't think that's what's going on here. I think God just wants to change our perspective. Listen to what one lady says. While God delights in children, he does not speak of them in some cutesy photo shoot kind of way. He compares them not to tiny fairies or dewy flowers, but to arrows, to weapons in the hand of a mighty man. God does not tell us to desire the blessing of children because their cheerful voices will make our houses feel cozy. He tells us to desire children who will contend with the enemy in the gate. It's natural and good that we delight in little things with our children. God didn't command mothers to rejoice over elbow dimples and the smell of a new baby's head. He didn't tell us to smile over them while they sleep or to love the way they look in footy pajamas. He didn't tell us these things because he didn't have to. That's the natural love of a mother for her children. But the love that we need, the reminders that we need, is to love them not for our own sake, but what God is doing through them. And this is where we need to change our perspective on children. What the Lord does here is he flips things on their head. So my mother-in-law is in town, and we were talking yesterday about her estate and what it looks like and how things are going to shape up and all this kind of stuff, right? And, and, and how things are going to go when she and my father-in-law pass. And so you think, well, children get an inheritance. That's what children's do, that they receive an inheritance. But what's interesting here is in verse 3, it doesn't say that children get an inheritance. What does it say? They are an inheritance. So we have a tendency in our worst moments to think of our children as those people who get from us, right? And the first perspective shift that God wants you to have is children aren't just the ones who get your inheritance from you. Children are an inheritance from the Lord. Do you see that? Now, how many of you are looking forward to getting an inheritance one day? Ellie, I'm a pastor. Good luck for you. I'm sorry. All right. You may marry a rich man. Oh, okay. She wants the house. Oh, the couch. You got it. We have a very nice couch that we inherited. Um, we look forward to inheritance because it'll help us get over a hump or, or set us up or do all kinds of things. The Lord wants you to look at your children that way, that, that they're the inheritance. Or how about this? It says the fruit of the womb is a reward. That's a money term. That's the, the that same word in Hebrew was used when um, Jonah got on the boat and paid his fare. He paid them. So the idea of, of reward is maybe not the best translation, but it's hard to get a one-to-one -one correspondence. It just means the fruit of the womb is cash money, which is interesting because when we think of our children and money, we tend to think of them as the people who do what? Take it away, all right? So we're paying for braces right now and getting ready to pay for a new driver. Why did y'all not warn us about this? Like, before, seriously, before your kid turns 14, dads, you need a raise or a new job. Because what you think is a high insurance cost is nothing. And I hear it's not that bad for girls. What in the world? We think our children take cash money. But God here says to Solomon that children are a reward. We tend to think that our children take our life, and I know you don't think that all the time, but there are moments, aren't they? 
They're the things that are killing me. But God here says they're a weapon in your hand. So Paige, you're having a baby in June, right? What is it? I thought we were speaking in tongues there for a second. All right. Maybe you were. All right. All right. So when somebody says, how's it going with the newborn baby? Here's what you say. It's like arrows in my hand. I feel like I'm going out to the gun range and going to shoot some targets. I feel so lithe. I've got so much energy. You may not feel that way. But what is the Lord saying? The Lord is saying that, that children are a blessing. They're a blessing. And to the degree that our mind shift switches so that when we think of our children, we don't think of them as a blessing, uh, then, then we're not where the Lord wants us to be. Because when we're not thinking of them as a blessing from God, we're not parenting from rest either. And not only do you have to work from rest, you have to parent from rest. Of course, rest means trusting in the Lord and doing everything that the Lord says. The Lord says to encourage your children. The Lord says to love your children. The Lord says to discipline your children. The Lord says to be in church with your children. The Lord says so many things, and part of trusting him is obeying his word. The Lord says in Deuteronomy 6 that when your children rise up, they should hear the word from you. When your children go to bed, they should hear the word from you. When your children are eating, they should hear the word from you. When they're walking beside you, they should hear the word from you. There's a lot of work, yes. But fundamentally, we have to bear in mind that children are a blessing and that God has to do the big work. And then I love this picture. He doesn't say that children are swords. He says that children are what? Now, swords are keep them close for close-in fighting. What do you do with an arrow? You shoot it out a long distance. I tell my kids this all the time. I try to spend as much time with you when I can so that I won't miss you that much when you're gone. I'm kidding. I'll miss them terribly, and they probably won't go anywhere anytime soon. But we need to shift our perspective that our kids are to be raised in a godly home so that they can be shot out into the world to do some damage for the cause of God. Do you think of your children that way? Or do you think of them primarily as things that exist for your comfort and your benefit and your emotional health? The problem is your kids don't exist for your sake. They exist for God's sake. And you're a steward as much as you are a parent, stewarding them along, obeying God on their behalf, so that when the time comes, you can release them out into the world to do some damage. The picture here in Psalm 127 is actually of a man. It says, he will not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. That's the gate of the city. You know what happened in the gate of the city? In the gate of the city is where law, it was the law court. And so the picture here is of a lawsuit and you're getting ready to have all your stuff taken from you, be put to shame. And then all of a sudden you got all these kids that just come up and go, take all their stuff, we got them. And so we shoot them out into the world so that they can do great damage in the cause of God. But that only happens when we work with the Lord. And we can only say that we're working with the Lord when we're trusting the Lord to do the things that are fundamentally most important. I can discipline my kids, but I cannot manipulate them into repentance. I can work hard in situations where things aren't great for my kids. 
but if, if the whole weight of it is on me, then I'm going to manipulate every situation to make it perfect, and that'll make my kids miserable, that'll make me miserable, and it'll make everybody else around me miserable. If I think it's all up to me and I think I'm doing good, then I think the way I'm doing it is the way everybody should do it. In other words, if we think it's up to us, we get in all kinds of trouble. We're just to humbly do our job. But some of us somehow figure out a way to both think that it's all up to us and not to do our job. And that's just the recipe for misery. So we need to change our perspective this morning. And the, the fundamental perspective change that we need is that it's God who will do the work. And, how can, and it's really to live under this banner. <clears throat> it says in verse 2, who does he give his sleep to? His beloved. What does that mean? That means that the fundamental posture that we carry into life, that we carry into work, and that we carry into parenting is this. God loves me. God loves me. And, and I'm going to live in that truth, and I'm going to live in the good of that truth, and I'm going to feel in the good of that truth, and I'm going to parent in the good of that truth, and I'm going to labor and work hard in the good of that truth that God loves me and that God works everything for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. I'm God's Jedediah, in other words. And that's the fundamental posture that we need in our life if God is going to do great things through us. If everything is not going to be vanity, then the fundamental controlling thing over our emotions and our actions is that I am loved by God. And the way that we can know that is if we trust in his son. If we trust in his son. So let me close with just a few things here and then we'll go eat fried chicken with mom. <clears throat> Number one, again, check your posture. Check your posture. How, does, how is your faith working for you? Another nerd moment. I won't give you the Latin for them, but there were three parts of faith according to the Protestant reformers. And you're in a Baptist church this morning. We kind of come from them, okay? Uh, so three parts of faith. Number one, knowledge, assent, and trust. If you're going to have biblical faith, you've got to have knowledge, you've got to have assent, you've got to have trust. Knowledge is, I know certain things about God to be true, or I know certain things about God. Assent is, I believe those things to be true. Trust is, and I'm going to lean upon them. Now, if there's a besetting sin in many of our lives, and it, the reason it confuses us is because we know things about God that are true, and we believe that they're true, it's just we don't what? Uh, we just don't lean the weight of our soul in on those things. That's why there's a lot of really smart theological people at our church who are basically emotional wrecks. And the problem is you can't be spiritually mature if you're emotionally mature. Can I get an oh me? And a lot of that comes from the fact that we don't rest. We, don't, we, we know that God loves us. We believe it's true. We don't rest in it. But everything is vain unless you rest in it. So be comforted. Have the humility to believe the fact that you are loved. Have the humility to believe that what you say about you, i.e., I'm not lovable, is not what's most true about you. 
that what's most true about you is what God says about you. And God says what? I love you. And if you'll lean in on me, I'll work every single thing for your good. And I'll make sure that your working and your parenting is not in vain. Number two, again, be restful because you can't do the most important things you're called to do anyway. Do you know that God calls us all the time to do things we can't do? I love it when people say, well, God commanded it, therefore I must be able to do it. Think again. God commanded it so that in resting on him, he will accomplish it as you believe. Number three, be on guard because you can know this and not live it. Who is this psalm written by? How'd that go? That's why I say, knowledge, assent, trust. You lean in on God no matter what your situation is, and he will work on your behalf. And the reason you can lean in on him is because in Jesus, he has shown you that he will accept the very worst and bring them into his family and call them his children. As I prayed earlier, the most important thing about you, the thing you should live out of, is not that you're a good father or a good mother, but that you have a good dad. And God has shown himself to be our father in Jesus Christ. And so this morning, if you do not know Jesus, then the first step of resting in his love is to turn from your sin and come to him through the death and sacrifice of Jesus. We repent of our sins. We turn from not following him. Not only do we not rest in his love, we openly reject him and his love. But the scripture says if we will turn from that and turn to him, we will find acceptance. Because Jesus died for the sake of all of those who will turn to him. His death will cover any sin that you've done and bring you back into right relationship with God. And then he'll give you his spirit, which the Bible says is his love poured out in your heart so that you can know that you are indeed his beloved. And that can be the posture that you now assume no matter what kind of grind daily life gives you. So be at rest, be comforted, be on guard because you can know this and not live it. And then finally, be repentant and faithful. Turn to God and trust. I hope you have a wonderful, wonderful Mother's Day. All of you, whether you're thankful, not thankful, just know this, that God is at work in your life and will work in such a way that nothing you do will be vain as you try. Thank you.